Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, we bring you an excerpt from a novella of prose poetry by Molly Godry, due out from Mudlush's Press this December. In We Take Me Apart, Godry draws on Gertrude Stein's tender buttons and familiar fairy tales to create a jagged modernist narrative as beautiful and dangerous as broken stained glass. Please enjoy Molly Godry. Long ago, in a different version, it was not a glass slipper, but a glass dress. It was not beautiful. It was not flowing like a stream. It did not have a train wider than an acre. In this version, everyone could see everything. Nothing was left to the imagination. Due to the drought, all the people in the town, children too, used their spades to uproot the vegetable gardens day after day after day. The day finally came when all they could do was look into the cloudiness and pray, disgrace. For why else would the gray lining of their clear sky withhold unless it had been decided that the only useful thing was for them to suffer? There was not so much as a cabbage leaf that year. Cold came to be known as night. Heaviness was no longer a worry. The town turned to violence. A rich man's cook was discovered making sauce in the heart of his house. As everyone knows that food does not smell until it boils, until it sweats, the people still there who had not yet gone away, their bellies round with malnutrition, tongues useless calluses, detected that woman's sauce came for her with a knife. The first ingredient they added was her toe, cut at a neat incline. They called it butter. They added her bottom half, called it custard. Her top half, they called tea. When she cried, they heard only the whistles of their stomachs filled with her. They raised their glasses, toasted. This is the story mother told to get me to behave. Tucked into my bedding, I once asked, but what about the girl in the glass dress? And mother's answer was, just count your lucky stars you're safe in bed and not a cook for a rich man. The way he made her feel, the way he looked at her, she left nothing to the imagination. Because mother was not supposed to have a child, I made it difficult for her to retain employment, so it was sometimes as if I never existed. I was never taught to read or write. There was always so much else to do. The sewing, tending garden, selling its offerings, the cleaning of our living spaces, which, while small, were not so humble as to be neglected. It was not always work. Because there were so few others in our lives, we were starved for attention. So mother made up a game called flattering. To play, I had to pay her a compliment after which she would say thank you and give me a thing she had found or been given. The yellow rubber innard of a frog's eye, bloody feathers, a fistful of water. Although we were never rich or well attended, with such playthings I was pleased. Springs, when the sky was pink, when all the out-of-doors were bright blossoms of pink, I would have liked to play. But mother took odd jobs cleaning, brought me along to learn the game of princess. In my favorite house, there were copper pots hanging from the kitchen walls. 
The kitchen was closed to the woman of the house. The cook had rules. One was children should eat cookies quietly at the table while mothers cleaned. Those three spring days, the game of princess actually made sense. But there was still the rest of the season. I had never encountered rudeness, but from spring sprung fine tall ladies with short tempers whose words I scrubbed away, desperate for them to relieve us of their gazes so we could return again to our game in which the trials were dirt, spotlessness, our single goal. Summers, there were children to play with, but their finery embarrassed me. I had overheard a mother define play clothes as rags, disposable, of no consequence if misplaced. At home, rags were not disposable. If misplaced, the consequence was dirt. Fall was when children returned to school. I was grateful to escape them, their mockery of my appearance, which mother said was not so bad. One year, when she came home from market, she frowned and said, You are a woman now, and there will be no more games. Do you understand? As there was only one correct answer, I said it. That night, instead of dinner, she said, Sit between my knees, and when I did, she withdrew from her purse several red leaves that she wove into my hair. She said, You are a queen, my dear, and this is your crown. Have pride. I smiled so that she could not see. She reached for something, placed it in my lap. It was a book. I did not know how to use it until she said, go on, open it. And all over those pages were photographs of the world in black and white and many shades of grain. In the weeks following, my crown fell apart until at last there was only a single red leaf, which I placed between the pages of my favorite photograph. I did not know it, but the photograph was of America, the Statue of Liberty. I did not know that one day, many years later, I would stand inside the Statue of Liberty and say, how lasting is your crown, my dear, have pride. Winters, mother said, tonight it is cutlet every night. We began each week with a loaf of bread, a knife, She said, let me cut that for you. And by the end of the winter, I had let her cut 12 loaves. How soft it was within those loaves, those crusts that grew harder by the day. I think there is no more perfect place to be than in a kitchen, the kind of kitchen our great-grandmothers knew, something like a cellar with a packed dirt floor, this large stone fireplace with a big black cast iron kettle suspended above rising flames. There are rabbits skinned, hanging on the wall beside root vegetables wrapped with twine, also hanging on the wall. Outside, the wind is fierce, but warm, soft, dim inside, only the sound of knitting needles clicking, making tender objects out of wool. A vagueness in the air. But in this kitchen, there is no such thing as blind. It is happy here, like a wedding with so many guests standing is the only option. Were I not so negative, I would bargain it all to end up in a kitchen like this. But only a fool bargains on faith. And today it is elbow macaroni, which means it is Saturday, noon on the nose. Tonight it is soup cake the texture of carpet, which means it is six o'clock, Thursday. 
What I want is to taste with deliberation the way a quiet meadow becomes dimmer after a wedding around the edges. But today it is asparagus, Friday, 5.45. I have no need for a timepiece. I was once a slender woman, but weight is meaningless or might as well be. I have not felt slender in years. I have grown large and it makes me worry I no longer know myself the way I knew myself when I was a girl and mother would mark my height on the door frame with a pencil in one hand and a butter knife in her other. And it is not difficult to recall the feel of that cold metal on my scalp and how I was quite afraid she might cut me if I was careless. So I never moved an inch but held my breath until it sometimes hurt until she said, all right then, take a look. And I would dip under her arm and turn and grin like a chimpanzee with an orange wedge in my mouth and watch as she marked the mark with my initials and the month and year. If someone were to mark me now on either side, she would probably need both sides of the doorframe because it has been a long time since I left this room. And when I entered, I was a slender woman and all they do is feed a person here and this is how I have come to mark the passing of time. Tonight, it is mashed potatoes. This morning, it is a puffed pastry. This morning, it is two fried eggs. Today, it is a small loaf of bread. Tonight, it is cow. All of it enough to make a person want to hurl her plate. But here, they are not of the shattering kind. The woman down the hall is wailing again. If only I were allowed to stitch the wall, we might not have to bear her every morning. If there is a how to describe the what I feel, then a dead red rose is filled and fingerprint smudged carafe on the center of a table, in the center of a room, in the center of a house, in a place called before the stitching years, where I have long collected dust, forgotten skin, fallen hair, sloughed cells that nowhere rise with the entrance of a body, yours, perhaps, in an otherwise empty room that has been, will be. When you one day make your way to the center of this house, the center of this room, you will reach and lift that carafe to expose a small, clean, perfect circle. You will be holding me. This is something you left me wanting when you left. Or maybe not a carafe, but sugar in a lidded bowl, on a cluttered counter, in a busy shop in a place called now. Here is where the well-known people meet and hug kiss each other's wind-bred cheeks when they come go. The well-known people, they scoop me with a tiny spoon. You are the spoon in me dividing me, the bowl beneath me supporting me, the lid above me that shuts out the light. They scatter me onto the counter where I spread into a pretty pattern. They stir me into steaming cups until I am gone, something else entirely, less sweet, hot, wet, like the morning after the last rain when drenched daffodils turned disfigured bells toward dawn, petals torn atop a dead fat robin's breast, the ravaged lawn. The night before, I had requested something sweet. Mother melted cocoa for that midnight feast. Rain pounded the sill. Lightning lit her sweat. The well-known people, when they lick the tips of their fingers, press into me on the counter. I will this way be lifted into the air, 
brought to winter lips in warm, moist mouths dissolve. In a different version, it was not a pea, but a cocoa bean. You came to us in the night, soaked in cold, trembling with fatigue. Mother brought you inside where the last of our candles were burning, prepared for you a bed of many mattresses. In the morning, she asked how you had slept. You nodded. I was the one who did the beds, knew you had not slept on those mattresses, had slept on the floor. Why? I had never seen a being beautiful as you, who in passing my cocoa bean test brought me great inspiration. The dresses I fashioned from that point forward were winged creations made from the excesses of water on hand, each drop sewn one on top of the next so that the texture was rippling as a pond beneath the moon. The dresses took on the buoyancy of flotation devices, hung in the air around us as I made them. I saw you reach up to touch the hem of the highest one. When it burst, your hand frozen in the air, you were as wet as the night of your arrival. The children who were to wear those dresses did not cause them to burst, but went away like small butterflies. One day you indicated by the look on your face that you had never seen such wearing. After many months, when Mother was away, cleaning homes because it was spring again, you said, how would you like to go away from here and travel the world with me making these dresses? And I said, I did not know you could speak. And you said, don't be stupid, of course I can speak, but I have been in mourning. And I said, what is mourning? And you said, suffering. And I said, what is suffering? And you said, imagine there were food in this house, and not just cocoa beans, but so much food you could not eat at all. And I said, don't be stupid. And you said, that would be the opposite of suffering. And I did not understand, but said, I see. When Mother came home, I told her we were leaving in the morning. And she said, I can't force you to stay. And tell me what you would like. Because I knew that all she had was cocoa, I said, may I have cocoa, please? Rain, sill, lightning, sweat. In the morning, petals, dead breast, lawn, we were gone. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Claire Hero.